0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about sportsmanship and how do we deal with conflicting old adages like if you're not cheating, you're not trying versus it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. I think I'll start by inserting my answer to those competing adages. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Well, it depends on what you mean by cheating. Players will jump offside from time to time, and officials will not always make the right call. Sometimes it makes sense to commit a professional foul, like pass interference in college football. So in that respect, I think that, yes, I think you've got to play a good strategic game, but not the kind of cheating that we've seen that has caused the NCAA to exist in the first place as a governing body for college sports in America to prevent teams from literally buying players or rewarding players for an extremely unsporting conduct. Now, I prefer the other adage. It's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. Now, some have turned that on its head in certain, you know, quarters and said, yes, but if you play the game right, you'll win. No. My attitude is not winning is how you play the game right, because every time you go out on the field, there will be a winner and a loser in most of the sports that I truly enjoy. Um, if you, let's leave soccer out of this for now. I've already covered soccer in an inappropriate conversation more than a year ago, right in the aftermath of the World Cup. And I'm going to leave college basketball aside for now because it's just the wrong time of year for that sport. And I didn't mention my feelings toward college basketball a few months ago dealing with Jim Valvano as a different drummer. Now, I want to talk about college football, and college football might actually be my favorite sport of all, which makes this time of year one of my favorite times of year, the college football bowl season. I'm going to get, in a minute, to the reason why this particular year is is so tarnished for me that I haven't watched a single bowl game all the way through yet. But for now, every time a football team goes out on the field, in college football today, there will be a winner and there will be a loser. So the notion that playing the game right means you'll win doesn't necessarily work because sometimes as a player you will do everything to the best of your ability and simply not be able to overcome either your opponent or other things beyond your control like weather like the officiating like the differences between your strategy and the unknown quality of the other coaching staff's strategy or even preparation it used to be when i was in when i was in college that football games did end in a tie But that's been, you know, pretty much, I guess we're in our second decade now of college football having an overtime system. Now, the right answer is sportsmanship is how to play the game. It doesn't matter whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. And the answer to that question, how do you play the game, is sportsmanship. And sportsmanship in this day and age, and really for the last 30 years, has been, well, long gone. If you've seen the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary called Pony Excess, I think you get a pretty good idea of what some people mean by if you're not cheating, you're not trying. That's an outstanding documentary about college football in the late 70s and early 1980s. And when people make over-the-top references to you know colleges buying players, they meant it back then. It actually was the way some of the major institutions got things done. I had a major pro-prospect who went to my high school. I think I mentioned this in the drumming up racial unrest episode. And uh, he ultimately had to make a decision about whether to go to Southern Methodist University, the school featured in the Pony Excess documentary, or the University of Oklahoma. And I asked him why he elected to go with Oklahoma instead of SMU. Because if you watched the SMU Mustangs play football on TV, you just had a sense that they were about to become – the kind of dominant force in college football that the Miami Hurricanes would later become. Ironically, the Miami Hurricanes were representing the other side of poor sportsmanship. And he pretty much said, hey, based on some of the things that happened in the recruiting process, he just got a bad feeling that if if he was saying no to things that shouldn't have been asked of him, that other players were probably saying yes, and it was a bad sign. And he went to the University of Oklahoma instead, where, don't get me wrong, he probably had to say no to some things there, too. I don't want to make a comparison between the classic Miami Hurricanes football program in the late 80s and early 90s and the University of Oklahoma as if one is good and one is bad. I, my, from my perspective, both those teams had horrifically poor sportsmanship in the 1980s. So if you see another ESPN documentary called The U, I believe, uh, referring to the Miami Hurricanes football program and the, it was just the general unsporting Negative play. Uh, arrogance is too nice of a word for it. It's important to remember that we sometimes think of these things as either or. Uh, Miami did it wrong, therefore other opponents did it right. I'm not sure that Notre Dame was uh, the spitting image of good play. I just know that they were on the receiving end of a lot of very unsporting play in the games they played against Miami. And when the University of Miami and the Oklahoma Sooners got together to play each other, it was almost two peas in a pod. Brian Bosworth had uh, noted before in interviews and in some comment that when he was at uh, the University of Oklahoma playing for the Sooners, uh, he wasn't above poking fingers in the opposing quarterback's eyes after a sack, uh, spitting on players in the the big pileup, doing his best to, if you could hawk a nice loogie into somebody's mouth, you might be able to take their head out of the game. You might even be able to, to, to get them to leave the field and receive some sort of treatment. You know, that kind of play. Completely unsportsmanlike and completely unacceptable. And yet for most of the 1980s, this was when I was hearing things from sports writers in newsrooms. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Well, I don't think so. Again, there's a difference between the way the college football rule for pass interference works today in the NFL the other team gets a first down where the, where the uh, penalty occurred. So if you throw a 50-yard pass and the defensive back takes uh, illegal advantage of the play, you could be facing a 50-yard penalty. But in college football, it doesn't work that way. If somebody throws a 45, 50-yard pass and egregious, obvious, no doubt about it, pass interference is committed, it's 15 yards and an automatic first down. Now, sometimes pass interference isn't 15 yards because sometimes passes don't go that far. So it's the spot of the foul up to 15 yards. But beyond that, it's just a 15-yard penalty. If I was in a prevent defense mode as a defensive coach and had gathered my defensive secondary around me and um, I was dealing with an opponent that was out of timeouts with less than a minute to play, sitting with the football on their own side of the field, maybe the 30, 35-yard line, the one thing I would tell my defensive back says, nobody catches a ball over your head. Nobody gets a big bum on you. The second that quarterback throws a pass that goes more than 25 yards, uh, I would rather commit pass interference than give the big reception and run the risk of a broken tackle leading to a game-deciding touchdown. That kind of intentional professional fouling, I'm okay with. Uh, In some ways, that's what the sports writers should have been talking about. As opposed to praising players who found a way to get away with face masking or intentionally, um, you know, fisting the genitals of their opponents. Things of that nature, which, you know, again, don't dignify the game at all. Is there a line in between there where these two things meet? I think there is. And I think where it comes down to it is is what you're doing during the, during the field of play or not during the field of play. When a pass is in the air and a defensive back is trying to stop a receiver from catching it, anything that happens there, whether it ultimately be called a penalty, um, defensive holding, or just straight-up pass interference, that's all in in the field of play. Every now and then, I'll, a defensive back who you know is being held or believes he's being held illegally by the offensive lineman will get to the quarterback late. So if you're a defensive lineman, you sort of have this mental clock that you know how far away you are from the quarterback. If somebody grabs your shirt from behind and slows up that mental clock and then let's go in hopes that an official will not see it and not call it for holding, you might get to the quarterback late. It always infuriates me when a 15-yard penalty is called against my team in those situations, as you might imagine. But I don't get mad at the player because in my mind, that's one of those field-of-play type things like pass interference. Pass interference. If I get to the quarterback late or hit him in an awkward way because somebody is behaving illegally toward me, you let the chips fall where they may. And every now and then, getting a 15-yard penalty for roughing the passer isn't exactly bad strategy. What about things that are done kind of in that before-the-play situation? We have rules now in college football that says that you can't put 14, 15, 16 people in the huddle. So the defense doesn't know whether you're going to align yourselves in a predominantly running or passing formation. That's called as a penalty every time now. And I think that's a good penalty because it's unsporting play. It doesn't make sense. The best example that I've seen of this, though, came just this year in the five minutes or so of postseason Division I-A football that I have seen. And what it was was the very end of the New Orleans Bowl between Louisiana Lafayette uh, playing in front of a partisan home crowd because Louisiana team playing in a Louisiana-based bowl game against San Diego State. Now, San Diego State University, a much bigger school, at least from a football perspective, with a bigger you know, college football history. Louisiana Lafayette playing in the first bowl game ever. So the Ragin' Cajuns have never been in this spot before. And the thing I was curious about before the game started was whether or not the uh, Ragin' Cajuns were going to play like they were just happy to be there or whether they were going to play to win the game. And by all accounts, and again, I didn't watch the first three and a half quarters, but for all accounts, Louisiana Lafayette played this game perfectly and deserved to be rewarded for their efforts because they came in um, loose as can be, no holds barred, not playing tight, but also not taking anything for granted, not just cashing in the honor of getting to a bowl game. They let it all hang out, put up huge yardage uh, from the quarterback and receiver's positions and had the game, what seemed to be well in hand at that point in the fourth quarter. San Diego State, though, known for coming back, a comeback team this year, put up some touchdowns late, took the lead late, and with 35 seconds to play and no timeouts, Louisiana Lafayette was behind for the first time and back to receive. And their quarterback moved them in to the very edge of the field goal range of their kicker. Now we're going to talk about football, college football, from the perspective not just of offense or not just of defense, but the importance of offense, defense, and special teams all being you know well-coached, well-schemed and planned, and well-executed in order for you to truly be a great college football team. And this was not a great game for the special teams. Uh, Louisiana Lafayette had missed a couple of extra points, and they'd had some questions about their center-to-holder exchange. And although they're kicker-capable, of kicking field goals in the 50-yard range, I think as long as 52 or 53, he'd never made a 55-yarder. And yet here, with not enough time on the clock for any other plays, and no timeouts anyway, they were lining up for a 55-yard field goal attempt. Now, what was the, uh, the positives for the Ragin' Cajuns? Well, they were feeling a bit like a team of destiny. Uh, they had some momentum on their side. They didn't get down, in other words, after having blown a big lead. The other thing going for them was, you know, that you have a fairly experienced kicker here who's inside a dome. So weather's not a factor. You're in the New Orleans Superdome. And if you can just, you know, make a good connection and benefit from a good snap and a good hold, you've got a chance. I mean, this is a kicker who probably knows he's got the leg to do it. But in that situation, I was thinking to myself that if I'm the coach of San Diego State, I don't call a timeout, even if I have one. I don't call it because sometimes you can call a timeout and do what um, pundits call icing the kicker. Give the kicker 35, 45 more seconds to think about what he's going to do and let him get into that um, pre-kick motion. Let him get it set and expecting the snap and then call the timeout at the last minute. That's that's good sporting play. Uh, It's professional play. No problem with that. But in this case, if I was the coach of the San Diego State Aztecs, I don't call timeout. Because I figure this guy had iced himself in that scenario with all the pressure building and that any interruption in play like a timeout might have the inverse effect of calming him down, of de-icing the kicker if there is such a concept. Because I was putting myself in his shoes and I'm sure that the Ragin' Cajun's kicker was there thinking a lot. You know, too much in his head, not enough in the motion and the routine. Realizing that his action in this situation was going to either give his team their first ever victory in a postseason bowl game or disappointment. And I'm sure he's thinking, 55 yards, I do this in practice all the time, I can do this. But that's different from a game situation where the team had demonstrated during the course of the football game that even an extra point, which is technically only a 20-yard kick, um, that they, they weren't necessarily executing that brilliantly in this game. What happened, though? instead of a timeout being called to ice the kicker, a penalty was called. The ball was already 55 yards away from the goalposts that sit at the end of the end zone in college football, and a five-yard penalty would take them to 60 yards away and perhaps force the Ragin' Cajuns into a different approach. Instead of attempting what might have been a record-setting field goal, certainly a record-setting field goal for the New Orleans Bowl, they might have instead tried to go with a trick play or a Hail Mary or a hook and lateral or some other means of, of getting points that seemed less speculative, right? But in this case, the five-yard penalty was not on Louisiana Lafayette for a um, legal procedure, jumping off sides before the snap. They did jump offside before the snap, but there was a lot of jumping in motion on both sides of the ball. And you thought, wow, if you're an official, I mean, I know I've, I'm no longer putting myself in the kicker's shoes. I'm putting myself in the official's shoes. You've got to sort out which way to call this. One takes the kicker into his range and makes Louisiana Lafayette's ability to win the game seem more possible. The other pretty much ices a win for San Diego State by taking it out of, of any conceivable normal range for this kicker. But what was the call? The call wasn't that San Diego State was in the neutral zone and um, triggered the offside by... The offense. It wasn't that the offense had just jumped on offside on their own. The call, it appears to be, and again, officials don't do postseason press conferences and answer a lot of questions. But the call appeared to be on the San Diego State line for barking out fake signals and doing other things to illegally get Louisiana Lafayette to jump offside. I forget the exact name of the penalty. It's a crazy name. Won't mean anything to anybody because you never hear this particular name called as a five-yard penalty, but it was basically the penalty that you call when one team is faking the snap count on another team and trying to get them to jump offside. That is the kind of unsportsmanlike play I'm talking about. And most of the time, or at least a lot of the time, this unsporting play has a quality to it of being sort of self-destructive. A lot of times when you see teams, you know, belittling their opponent or bragging about their abilities you bring something out of the David inside the opponent that turns you into Goliath in the worst possible way. And so big upping yourself in the media doesn't help you at all on the football field. And here in this case, I think that the Louisiana Lafayette kick might have been good from 55 yards out. The kick that he attempted, if you look at it on YouTube or whatever, it appears that it was it wasn't drifting off to the left so far that five more yards would have taken it outside the goalposts, and it seemed to be high enough in the air that five more yards would have still cleared the crossbar. That's the kick he actually attempted. It's not the kick he would have attempted. What would have his actual field goal attempt looked like had there not been the penalty? So we can't assume that the kick that he made from 50 yards out would have been identical in every way to the kick he would have made from 55 yards out. He had been de iced. His confidence had been restored. He'd been taken to a place where he was attempting a a field goal that he had made before on more than just one occasion, as opposed to the longest kick he ever actually made in his college football career in a live game play situation. So in essence, by committing that five-yard penalty, San Diego State moved Louisiana Lafayette from a seemingly um, very difficult, if not almost impossible situation, into one that they were able to execute their poor sportsmanship backfired on them completely. The Pollyanna Pollyanna Calgary Records Podcast. Podcast. So it's like Someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci, specifically. Tony Pucci, specifically. Hi, this is Tony Pucci of the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records Podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play one hour of pod safe pop and rock music. You can find the show at Cowgirl.com or at the host podcast network site, Simply syndicated.com. Peace and love. One of the reasons that I, as a fan, attach so much interest in sportsmanship is because I feel like in college football, there are so many things that I cannot control. The method of choosing a national champion is, and always has been, almost completely spurious. Now, fans of the current method we use, the bowl championship series poll, and all of its calculations and its combinations of rules and different voting procedures and polling procedures and computer input might take offense to that. But I think it's easy to cite enough past examples in years like 2003, 2004, 2007, and of course, this year, where the system is, it's completely broken. It doesn't work. And as a fan, you feel helpless in the face of it, that you know that you're watching a game that unlike NCAA college basketball, or for that matter, every other college sport in America, or for that matter, every other professional sport as well. College football is, in its method of picking a champion, far more suspect than any sport, including those sports which pick a champion by popular vote. At least in figure skating and in gymnastics floor exercise routines, and for that matter, in a lot of amateur boxing, we know right up front that this sport is taking place in front of a panel of judges and whoever likes what they've seen the best is going to pick the winner. College football is worse because college football is doing exactly that and at the same time putting up a completely unsporting pretext that it's really being settled on the field. It's not. In college football, coaches vote on who they think the best team is, um, most of the time not having seen any of the games live because, of course, on Saturday, those coaches are coaching their own game or getting ready for their own game and really very unlikely to be watching a lot of sports that um, we felt maybe for whatever reason that that was a better contribution than the writers would be, Where at least sports writers are watching a lot of sports and actually have as their job watching sports for a living. But even that is a popularity contest. So I'm going to get to a quote from somebody who votes in one of the uh, non-coaching polls that is used in deciding who plays in the national championship game and give you a sense of just exactly what's going on here. Now, Is the process of picking the two teams that play for the national football championship in American college football inherently unsporting or is it just, you know, sort of broken and silly at best and corrupt and idiotic at worst? Well, where sportsmanship creeps in is when we make a decision that we don't have any facts to go on. It would be like the the. The feeling I thought that official might have had in the New Orleans Bowl at the end who was ultimately going to decide whether Louisiana Lafayette was going to attempt a fifty a fifty five or a sixty yard kick if the decision hadn't been made by the unsporting play of the of the San Diego State team, if it literally had been nobody said anything nobody did anything illegal nobody tried to take legal advantage it was just a matter of both sides jumped at the same time. now what do you do in college basketball you so often see fouls committed in the last you know seconds or portions of a seconds of a basketball game, not get called because the officials do not want to be blowing a whistle and putting the game deciding score at the free throw line where they're essentially deciding how it ends instead of the players on the court. And um, so you you get that sort of situation, right? But we do have facts to go on when it comes to how to vote. I want to quickly read, and, and just so in the interest of being fully open, I'm a fan of Oklahoma athletics. I've spent a lot of time in that part of the country. I've lived in states like Missouri and, and Kansas and Oklahoma, and and Oklahoma State is the team that I prefer among all the universities in that part of the country, which means I'm a Big 12 conference guy. If you know something about the way American sports historically have lined up, and somewhat the way they line up now still, it's been kind of messy lately. But you know that part of the country is very much Big 8 country, or now Big 12 country, and so I'm coming in with this bias, which is why I think you've got you to take that bias away and find yourself some real-life stats to go with. So first, for an international audience, what in the heck is this BCS thing, and how does it work? Well, college football teams used to play an 11-game regular season, and that was it. You'd play 11 games. The winner of each conference was aligned to one degree or another with a bowl game, and you end up with just tragic messed-up situations that happen. I'm not saying that the current system is terrible and the old system was great. It's always been terrible. One year, 1983-1984, that college football season, the Texas Longhorns produced one of the best defenses in college football history and completed their regular season undefeated and, by and large, unchallenged. In the same year, the Nebraska Cornhuskers completed what I still think is perhaps the finest offensive team I've seen and an undefeated season where their defense would give up points, would give up scores, but no one could match them score for score. Their offense was too good. So you've got two teams that are undefeated, and everyone else in college football has been beaten at least once. And one of them has to play in the Orange Bowl, sort of by contract. And the other one, the Southwestern Conference team in Texas, has to play in the Cotton Bowl. So you have one team playing in a bowl game in Dallas, Texas, another team playing in a bowl game in Miami, Florida. It's clearly the best defense versus the best offense. And we can't get these two teams together. We can't let them play and decide who's the national champion. Ironically, both of them lost their bowl games in incredibly close fashion. So in some ways, maybe the powers that be in the National Collegiate Athletic Association thought, well, we got an out here. The controversy we're going to have to deal with has gone away. And maybe just maybe in the back of the minds of some people, that was a sigh of relief. But to me, the reason the bowl championship series method was put together of combining coaches' votes, writers' votes, and former athletes' and sports information guys' votes with several computer polls' votes and stirring that up into a big gumbo, if you will, of of calculations to spit out a result that says, how do we rank all the teams? Therefore, how do we pick the two who are best? I think the reason that system exists in part is because a lot of the powers that be remember Nebraska versus Texas, and how it didn't happen. You can never return to this point in history, as the saying goes. So, what is this point in history? What is the BCS doing when it has an undefeated LSU Tigers team sitting on top of the polls? And the question is, which one of the one-loss teams will play them in the only game that determines the national champion? And here are the stats. Oklahoma State. Well, first off, Oklahoma State played nine teams that are going to bowl games this year. Alabama played seven. Uh, Stanford, something like a handful. Wins over teams that appeared in the poll when they were deciding who was in the final BCS poll. Oklahoma State played five. Alabama, two. Stanford, nobody. Wins over bowl-bound teams with winning records. Because in America, we have so many of these postseason celebration games. The teams that play 500, win six, lost six get into bowl games, but if you take the nine Oklahoma State teams and you say, wait a second, how many of their nine had a winning record? The answer is seven, and uh, if you look at Alabama, the answer is three, and Stanford, the answer is three. The other thing is, well, which one won their conference championship? Um, Oklahoma State won the Big 12, Alabama finished second to LSU, no shame there, in the Southeastern Conference, and Stanford finished second to Oregon. Interestingly, Alabama lost at home to LSU, Stanford lost at home to Oregon. And Oklahoma State's only loss was a double overtime loss at Iowa State, one of the bullbound teams with a 6 and 6 record. And they lost that game on the within 24 hours of two members of the athletic department, virtually the entire coaching staff of the women's basketball team, dying in a plane crash that took the lives of four people. So when you look at the resumes, you can make a lot of decisions about that. You could make a decision based just on the resumes that Oklahoma State deserves to be the number two team in the country. You also could make a reasonable case that Alabama, whose only loss was to the number one team, could be the number two team in the country. The resume is not terrible. And just playing in the Southeastern Conference, I think, helps you with your computer ratings, that you're playing against teams who played really good teams. And Stanford, of course, seems like a non-starter. Stanford has you know, no wins against teams that were in that last BCS Top 25 poll uh, before the voting. They only had three games against bullbound bound opponents to Oklahoma State's six. They didn't win their conference championship. Their loss came at home. It wasn't even close. It was something like a 20-plus point loss. So when you look at it, again, I'm willing to entertain the idea that there's some question about the strength of Of the resume of Oklahoma State versus Alabama, but there really is no question about the strength of the resume of either Oklahoma State or Alabama versus Stanford. In other words, somebody putting Stanford above either one of those two teams in the final poll, well, you'd have to be the coach of Stanford, right? The coach of Stanford is the only person who could make a claim that despite his team's resume, despite the unexpected weakness of their opponents despite the loss that they endured he knows something that wasn't shown on the field but the rest of us don't know anything about stanford that would make us make that decision so where does unsporting play creep in well there's a couple of ways here that i think unsporting play creeps in one is in college football There are two tiers of the top level of the biggest schools, the schools with the largest athletic programs and athletic budgets. The biggest and the best, the big-time college football. used to be called 1A. Now it's called the um, Football Bowl Series. The other level, Division one AA, as it used to be called, is the Football Championship Series. That level has a full-on playoff. And the big-time college football doesn't get to have a playoff. We use this random method that... Again, I'm referring to as either completely idiotic or corrupt, uh, somewhere in between there. And if you want to get a winning record, if you want to uh, get yourself bowl eligible, if you're a team that's on the rise but you're not quite there yet, you can schedule a game against somebody in this lower division. A team that is not you know, big enough or uh, strong enough in terms of its athletic resume to play in the bowl series. They're not 1A, in other words. You can play one of these smaller schools, pick up the win, and once every three, four years, you can count that win towards your resume, if you need it, to earn the way to a bowl game. So in other words, if you finish 6-6, six and six, but you only have five wins against teams that are actually big-time college football, every now and then you can let that sixth win count. So you see schools playing opponents like Sam Houston State, Uh, or Southwest Missouri State. Oklahoma State has, in years past, played those teams. This year, Alabama scheduled Georgia Southern. So when Oklahoma State is dealing with a road game against a bowl-bound Big 12 opponent like Iowa State and losing in double overtime at a school that has a habit, frankly, of being a late-November upset trap for teams that are either undefeated or bound for a conference title game of some sort, at that same time, Alabama's playing Georgia Southern. In other words, despite the fact that it's a 12-game regular season, Oklahoma State beat 12 opponents who are part of the football bowl series, and nine of them good enough to go to bowl games. Alabama played 11. They didn't play 12. I don't want to use a demeaning term like saying they put a cupcake on their schedule, but I don't care how little you think of a team like Iowa State Cyclones. they're, They're better than Georgia Southern. It's not like Georgia Southern is playing in the 1AA championship game. They lost in the playoffs. They dropped out in the semifinals, I believe. So it's not like Alabama was even playing the best of the best of the best in the lower division. This is roughly equivalent in, in uh, European football to somebody from Syria A playing a team in Syria B and getting to count that toward their points total. Or somebody in England in the premiership playing a championship team and getting to count that toward their, po- their points total. So I've got a bias I don't look at the resumes of these two schools and say they're roughly equal because Alabama played LSU and they're a good team. They're the best team, at least on paper, in college football. And Alabama didn't you know, lose the game you know, handily. They were right at it the whole way. If they made one of the four field goals they'd missed during this course of the ball game, they might have won it. But let's not forget the fact that they played that game in Alabama. And this bowl game the bowl game I don't intend to watch the national championship game between LSU and Alabama the rematch is going to be played in Louisiana so here's why I'm upset about the sportsmanship again trying to be deferential because it's the only thing you can do to be a sporting fan in a situation that is so random and you know arbitrary as this willing to grant that anybody who put Alabama number 2 on their poll and Oklahoma state number 3 on their poll there's no real way to question the wisdom there And anybody who put Oklahoma State number two on their poll and Alabama number three on their poll, there's no real way to question the wisdom there either, that you could make an argument that there's enough to be had either way here. And I believe if something like 25 to 30 percent of the voters had put Oklahoma State number two, that in combination with the computer rankings, which – You know, had the Big 12 right there as being the best conference in football or right there with the SEC as being the best conference says in football this year uh, would have been enough to tilt the calculation and put Oklahoma State in the national championship game. What happened, though? What happened instead? You have a handful of coaches who I consider to have done the most unsportsmanlike thing I've seen done this year. Something that is inexplicable when you look against the data that's available to you. They voted Oklahoma State behind Stanford in the polls in an effort, in my opinion, to ensure that Alabama-LSU would play a rematch against each other and not in an effort to accurately reflect where the teams belong in the final polling. Again, Oklahoma State loses on the road in double overtime to a bull-bound team on the day that two of their coaching staff uh, in the athletic department died in a plane crash versus Stanford at home losing to Oregon 53-30. to You know, Alabama and Stanford didn't play that many highly ranked, highly regarded teams. Um, Alabama played in the SEC against, well, Arkansas and LSU. You you throw in Auburn as the third team. Those are the only teams that they played in conference play with winning records. We rightfully regard the SEC as a very powerful football conference, but the SEC also has an unbalanced schedule, meaning every team doesn't play every other team. And if you happen to be in that place in your unbalanced schedule where you're not facing South Carolina or Georgia, you're not playing the two best teams from the Eastern Division of the conference at all. So you you get a lucky break in your scheduling there, right? Stanford, to their part, you know, played against a USC team that I think was very good and doesn't count for their um, win-loss stats here as far as the top 25 goes because they're on probation. They're on probation for very Unsporting and player inducements, um, Southern Methodist University type pony excess kind of inducements. But if you look at the other teams that they played that were good, home to Oregon, which they lost, home to Washington, home to California, home to Notre Dame, you know, there's not a lot of tough road opposition facing Stanford this year. So I don't understand how, if you were David Cutcliffe, oh yes, I'm going to name and shame. If you're David Cutcliffe, the coach of Duke, I don't understand how you can intelligently justify Stanford being third and Oklahoma State being fourth. Perhaps it's the SEC ties that he has previously in his college career as a coach. I mean, Duke's not a Southeastern Conference team, but he didn't spend his entire career coaching Duke. Doug Maroney of Syracuse, once again, Stanford three, Oklahoma State four. Somebody needs to explain it. I can come up with an explanation for Nick Saban doing it. I think it's completely unethical. I think that Nick Saban and all the other coaches I'm about to mention should have their privileges for voting in the um, USA Today coaches poll taken away from them. They've lost the privilege to do this task. They have demonstrated a bias. They've demonstrated a complete inability to study statistics or to look at you know the resumes of teams lined up against each other. But I understand why Nick Saban did it. The difference between Nick Saban… And the coach of Oklahoma State University, who doesn't have a vote in this particular poll, it's not every coach that votes, Um, Mike Gundy, I'm 100% convinced, based on every interview he's done this year, including the recent interviews before and after the game against the Oklahoma Sooners that uh, pretty much propelled Oklahoma State into this debate to begin with, I'm convinced he would have put Alabama third. I'm equally convinced he would have put Oklahoma State second. I don't think there's any way he could have looked at the resumes of both those teams, along with Stanford and Arkansas and Houston or anybody else, and put Alabama anything lower than third. I don't understand why Nick Saban couldn't do the same. By this token, of course, David Shaw, the coach of Stanford, I get it. I don't fault him for putting Stanford third and Oklahoma State fourth. He could make an argument that he knows something about the Stanford team, something real, something tangible, something logically defensible that has not shown up in the results on the football field because he's the coach of stanford right he could have made an argument that stanford should have been second alabama third oklahoma state fourth and i would make the same defense of him it's okay for mike gundy to say that oklahoma state should be second it's okay for nick saban to say the same thing about his alabama team or for the coach of stanford to say the same thing they have identical records the resumes i think tell a different story of the teams and their performance on the field but they have identical records So what's Gary Pinkle of the University of Missouri's excuse that maybe he was sucking up to what his future conference is going to be as the University of Missouri and Texas A&M are two schools that intend to leave the Big 12 conference at the end of this year and go to the Southeastern conference. So he voted like he was partial to one conference over the other. Again, I get it. I, I understand Alabama being voted second in that situation. It's the Oklahoma State fourth I don't get. None of these are the most egregious, though. The two most egregious acts of unsporting play, unsporting decision-making, come from one of the coaches and one of the uh, Harris Poll voters. First, the coach, Troy Calhoun of Air Force, Alabama second, Stanford third, Arkansas fourth, Oklahoma State fifth. Yes, Oklahoma State with only one loss, that in double overtime on the road, is rated below an Arkansas team with two losses. Now, granted, Arkansas lost to two very good teams. They lost by double figures to both of them, LSU and Alabama. They weren't really in the game at the end of the game against either one of them. Oklahoma State being put below Stanford and Arkansas at fifth is an indication that, again, I mentioned all these coaches should have their votes stripped away from them. The coach of Air Force should not only have his his. USA Today coaches poll a vote taken away from him, but the U.S. military should perhaps consider di- diving into this just a little bit. Now, I'm not saying that the United States military needs to get itself involved in college athletics. What I am saying, though, is that if you're the head of the Air Force Academy and you see this kind of incredibly unintelligent decision making, this anti-intellectualism or perhaps this graft and corruption, if that's an explanation for it, I don't know if it is. But there's enough here to make you think, if you're deceiving yourself about something as black and white and plain and obvious as this, Coach Calhoun, what else are you deceiving yourself about? Are there NCAA rules that aren't being read any more carefully than the one loss records of teams in the final top five of your poll? It raises questions of integrity. And maybe I would feel differently about it if it weren't the Air Force. But when we're talking about the Army, program, Navy, Air Force, there's a little bit more importance to the integrity than just what happened on Saturday when two teams got together to play football. If you're lying to yourself about this, what else are you lying to yourself about? And at what point does lying to yourself become lying to players or modeling poor ethics to college athletes? And those are the college athletes that we're going to ask at one point to hop in a plane pick up a gun, and make wise choices on our behalf about who to kill and who not to kill to defend America's borders and America's freedom. This is a very big deal. Either the coach of Air Force doesn't take the responsibility of voting in this poll seriously enough in a situation where somewhere between 11 and $14 million are at stake for the school who gets into that championship game, or maybe it's just a matter of, uh, well, too lazy to care. Under the heading of too lazy to care, I want to turn over to the non coaches poll, where one of the voters voted Oklahoma State sixth this year. St. Petersburg Times and Tampa Bay.com, one of my favorite media institutions in the country, uh, that group is responsible for the Stuck in the 80s podcast, which I really enjoy, and they pushed published an article where they actually took the time to investigate some of the voting because there was curious voting all over the place the last week of the season missouri was ranked in the top 25 of the final bcs poll and likewise had votes in both uh, they didn't make the top 25 of the coaches poll but they had votes there right they were somewhere in the top 30 to 35 overall they uh they didn't play another game So when LSU was playing Georgia in the SEC championship game, and Oklahoma State was playing Oklahoma in what kind of turned out to be de facto a Big 12 championship game, Missouri and Auburn were two schools that were sitting home idle. They had finished their schedules. They ended up with identical records, and Missouri was number 25 in that final poll. Something else happened, in addition to the tomfoolery and hijinks in the top five, that led Missouri having not played or lost a game, obviously, because they were done with their regular season schedule, to drop out of the top 25 at Auburn to climb over them and jump in. Was an effort being made throughout the top 25 or even top 50 of all of these sort of polling activities? Was an effort being made to bolster the strength of schedule of Alabama's opponents at the expense of the opponents of teams like Oklahoma State and Stanford? It's a fair question. So the St. Petersburg Times went out to ask the question, What was going on in the mind of the Harris poll panelist who voted Oklahoma state number six, not just below Stanford and Arkansas, but also below Houston, even though Houston had just lost and lost, you know, pretty spectacularly in the conference USA championship game to Southern Mississippi. The answer they got from 80 year old George wine, a retired sports information director from the university of Iowa said, I think the BCS is just a mess. (laughs) I think college football is crying for a playoff system. This voting is highly subjective. I realize that the voting is subjective and often arbitrary. I probably don't do as much research, but yeah, who the hell knows whether Oregon is better than Wisconsin? Well, clearly, Wine, who lives in Iowa, didn't know whether Alabama was better than Oklahoma State or Stanford was better than Arkansas or Houston was better than any of them. And he literally, in this interview, perhaps mistakenly, he's an 80-year-old man, Uh, got confused and said he just took a shot, just took a guess. He was pressed for an answer, though, on the Oklahoma State question, despite the fact that he said, well, he said this. He says the the vote to put Houston ahead of Oklahoma State is justified because he believes Oklahoma State's lone loss in double overtime at Iowa State uh, is a worse loss than that of Houston, which lost by 28 points at home to Southern Mississippi. Quoting, Oklahoma State lost to Iowa State, which I think is a very bad loss. I think Southern Miss is a very good football team. And Wine said he attends every Iowa University Hawkeyes home game. Well, apparently he didn't get a chance to go to the Iowa game versus Iowa State this year, where Iowa State beat them, putting 44 points against what had been regarded as one of the better defenses in the Big Ten. You know, to sort of take the the bragging rights inside the state. Was the fact that Iowa State beat Iowa offensive to this former university employee at the University of Iowa? Was this um, vote against Oklahoma State? Some sort of um, revenge? Some sort of grudge match? Where it didn't have anything to do with Alabama or Oklahoma State to begin with, and it was just about the relatively meaningless internal bragging rights inside the state of Iowa. We have a very corrupt system here. Has as has been called out by the St. Petersburg Times staff writer Greg Amon. So you know that's an excellent job. Most of us don't have the ability to get inside the numbers on the way these polls are put together. This year, though, it was pretty obvious that there were some incredible anomalies. It wasn't necessarily a surprise that Alabama finished second and Oklahoma State finished third, but it's clearly a surprise as to how it happened. Now, if I was sitting in a sports newsroom right now, I wonder what I would hear from the sports editor. The sports editor in uh, one of the Oklahoma newsrooms that I worked in at one point uncorked the if you're not cheating, you're not trying answer my way. That he would probably say that if Mike Gundy had had the temerity to vote Oklahoma State second and Alabama fourth or fifth, that he would be doing his job. That, uh, that for Gundy to, to say that Alabama should be third is a mistake. For him to say that Alabama is a good football team who has deserved to be second for much of the year is a mistake that you've got to engage in unethical behavior in order to win. And anybody who doesn't engage in unethical behavior isn't trying hard enough. I think it's pretty easy to see the parallels between some of this behavior and what's going on in politics today. I'm not going to go too far down this avenue, but every now and then Congress will take a vote on some key budget issue. Are we extending a tax break? Are we canceling a tax hike? Are we expiring the sunset clause on a program so that it doesn't end are we voting to end the program how often are those votes about the actual program itself and what it means for the country for its economy for our infrastructure for our national defense and how often are those votes nothing more than an effort to embarrass our political opponents as a nation we've been so busy embarrassing our political opponents that the only people we've embarrassed as ourselves And if you look at the last six to eight months of what's gone on in the United States Congress, the only thing I can see that I find more embarrassing for a lack of wisdom, a lack of statesmanship, a lack of integrity and a lack of sportsmanship is my favorite sport, college football. I'm going to do a very short segment on Different Drummer today, and part of the reason I'm going to do so is that there will be more conversation about this player on another podcast where I've been given the privilege and opportunity to speak my mind. Sometime in early next year, probably January, but could be as late as February, the Greatest Events in Sporting History podcast, hosted by Shane Thomas and Jonathan Wilkinson, will cover the uh, Hall of Fame credentials of oklahoma state running back barry sanders barry sanders produced the single greatest season of a running back in the history of college football and then backed it up with a national football league career that has him constantly mentioned as the best of all time in the same breath with people like walter payton jim brown and emmett smith he is that big of a talent and one of the things that jumped out at me again in the interest of sportsmanship or questions about sportsmanship is a lot of the conversation this year about Monty Ball, the running back for University of Wisconsin Badgers, getting very, very close to Barry Sanders' totals for touchdowns. And if you look at Barry Sanders' numbers, it's really staggering. He had 39 touchdowns scored in an 11-game regular season, at a time when the NCAA didn't necessarily count postseason games with your stats – so if you go to the bowl game that Sanders played after that year uh, in 1988, he had you know, five more touchdowns then for a total of 44 touchdowns in a single year. Monty Ball right now, I believe, is sitting on 39, one passing, six, six receiving, and uh, 32 rushing. And he has a bowl game yet to play. The difference, of course, is that Monty Ball has done this in a 13-game season, because the regular season has moved from 11 games up to 12. Plus, uh, Wisconsin had a successful year and played in a um, Big Ten championship game, the first ever Big Ten championship game, for a 13th regular season game. So as it stands right now, if Monty Ball gets to the Rose Bowl and scores four touchdowns, not five, he'll be 43 to Barry Sanders' 44. But the argument that I would make... And the thing I think we should consider when we look at the impressiveness of Barry Sanders' resume and what he did in that that first year that he was really allowed to be the first first team starting tailback for Oklahoma State was 44 touchdowns in 12 games. The equivalent for a 14-game regular season would be somewhere between 51 and 52 touchdowns, meaning Monty Ball has about 13 scores to go if he truly is going to match the touchdown per game rate of the greatest of the greatest. This is not to diminish ball. He belonged in the Heisman conversation all year long for the trophy, even to the best player in college football. Let's be honest, typically the best offensive player in college football. And he is going to finish with a year that uh, Wisconsin fans will remember for a long, long time. That's, that's very, very due. As a matter of fact, has a lot to do with, I remember with why I remember Barry Sanders all this time, I saw a year that was just as spectacular, if not more spectacular, and that's why it really annoys me that people you know, don't connect the dots between teams like Oklahoma State and Wisconsin being forces in college football, or Oregon for that matter. Would Oklahoma State have gotten the votes they needed to play in the national title game against LSU instead of Alabama getting a second crack at a team they already lost to at home? If it was the Oklahoma Sooners, if Oklahoma and Oklahoma State had played the exact opposite seasons of each other, where you look at the results and you just say, no, this was Oklahoma's year and Oklahoma State was the team that lost to them, I believe Oklahoma would be playing in the Sugar Bowl, just like they did in 2003 against LSU, in a similar year where posters just couldn't decide who the best teams were. Even the computers had a hard time figuring out who the best teams were in that year. So I think that some of it comes down to credentials, and I think people forget that some of these teams have been, you know, have had spectacular years with spectacular players and performances in their past. How does Barry Sanders' um, history as a player tie into the question of sportsmanship? Well, I'll make this claim, and maybe this claim isn't as audacious as it sounds. There has been no more sportsmanlike player in the history of college football, or at least not among the Heisman Trophy winners, as Barry Sanders. Just watch footage on YouTube. Watch what happens when Sanders scores a touchdown. This is a player who never took scoring for granted. He has probably more runs for loss in NFL history or certainly in Detroit Lions history than he has, you know, touchdown scoring runs. He's the leader probably for his schools in both of those categories, at least on a single season basis. But what did he do when he get to the end zone? Would he rip off his helmet and bark at the crowd? Would he point to the skies or point to the crowd or point to his chest? Would he do a little dance? Would he make a little love? Would he get down tonight? No. Barry Sanders would score a touchdown, hand the football to the official as quickly as he possibly could, and go back and congratulate his offensive line and his receivers for the blocking that they did and the faking and the decoys that they did to make it possible for him to score. He was a team player. Sometimes I think we lose sight of the fact that football is a team game. It doesn't work any other way than that. And no player in college football history, certainly no player who excelled at the highest levels as Barry Sanders did, has set a better standard for how to recognize the importance of team and the efforts. He is the greatest sportsman I've ever watched play in person, at least in the game of American football. So what do we do about the argument that the University of Alabama had perhaps the best defense in college football this year, and therefore they should go to the championship game? Because we all know the old adage, defense wins championships. That old adage, by the way, carries about the same amount of credibility as if you're not cheating, you're not trying, or it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. After all, Alabama played the game against Georgia Southern this year, among other opponents. And, um, you know, clearly some fans of Alabama among the coaching ranks did a little bit of, well, you really can't call it cheating because our corrupt and inept rules allow for it to happen. But if our corrupt and inept rules didn't allow for some of this coach voting to influence the final results, well, then you wonder. We don't know for sure if each one of these coaches had voted with integrity, that it would have changed the results. That's almost not the question. The question is, people who have behaved without integrity should be dealt with and dealt with harshly, and the NCAA had an opportunity that it would never have taken in a million years to put a halt at least to who's playing in the Fiesta Bowl and who's playing in the BCS title game long enough to recalculate those votes, to deal with the people who voted in, in such an inept way, and to decide once and for all what it really would have made a difference to in the final calculations. We hear too much pandering about, well, what really would have happened. As for the question of defense wins championships, you can't be a successful football team if you are not excelling on some level or another on defense, offense, and special teams. So what does Alabama's resume look like? Well, Trent Richardson, if you eliminate Monty Ball, might be the best running back in college football. His yardage and his stats and his touchdown numbers don't compare to Monty Ball or to a few other running backs, but there's no doubt that when you're playing against Alabama and you're a defensive coach, Trent Richardson is one of the best players out there. So they've got a credible offense. Their special teams betrayed them, betrayed them in the loss against uh, LSU and has been shaky for several years now. So what does that matter? Well, here's why it matters. When you hear officials talk about game stats and they throw out numbers like the total yards, well, those aren't really the total yards, are they? Or are we, as fans, so unaware of what happens in football, that we just buy what people throw out to us as stats from the uh, color commentator or the play-by-play guy. Let me use a quick example in the Oklahoma-Oklahoma State game. The total net yard stat tells us that Oklahoma got 358 yards and Oklahoma State got 495 yards. Not hard to imagine why Oklahoma State won the game. But does that 150-ish yard difference account for why Oklahoma State won the game in such an incredibly dominating fashion? Of course not, because a key statistic is missing. In fact, several key statistics are missing. Um, Oklahoma State had one play where Oklahoma hiked the ball from the Oklahoma State 20-yard line, and after a sack that produced a fumble, one of the Oklahoma State linemen picked the ball up and rambled something like 60 yards down the field to where the sack fumble accounted for a loss of 10 to 15 yards, And the return accounted for about 60 more, and Oklahoma State ended up with a first and goal at the one yard line. Those numbers are not in the net yardage figures that I just quoted. They don't include return yards, they don't include the impact of turnovers. My father taught me something when I was very young, and it's a figure that I've shared with people over the years and sometimes seems to catch them off guard. And I've just come to the conclusion that I take college football more seriously than most people do, that I've got more of an analytical approach to the game. Every time you turn the football over, you give up half the field. This is obvious if you fumble at the 50, right? But if you fumble the ball on your own 10-yard line, that's worse in some ways than if you fumble the ball on the other team's 40-yard line, right? Because not only have you given up the ball, but you've given up deadly field position with the ball. Or, on the other occasion, if you've picked up 50 or 60 yards in offense from when you received a punt and fumbled the ball at your opponent's 10-yard line, now you're so close to scoring that that fumble is worth more than just, you know, the 10-yard difference you could have had to score. Every time you lose the football through a turnover, you're giving up half the field. Well, what about punting? Where do special teams fit in? Well, special teams fit in in two ways. First off, the return yards of a punter, the return yards of a kick returner matter. You could have a game where one team's defense was good enough to hold the other team from scoring at all and the other team punted, but the team that was good enough on defense to force all those punts was inept enough on offense that they never even got a first down. Is it possible that the one team that forced all the punts and themselves played so poorly on offense that they, they punted every time they got the ball, too, could win the game in a blowout? Doesn't that sound like a 0-0 zero, zero tie? Well, no. If one team's punt return game was so skilled, and their punt returner was so talented, that he returned seven touchdowns a game via kick returns and punt returns, you could blow out your opponent 35 to nothing every week that way. Because the return yardage matters it matters from a field position perspective, but it also just matters strictly from the same perspective of what yardage did you pick up. I mentioned the Oklahoma State-Oklahoma game. There was at least 60-70 yards of return yardage from Oklahoma University's five turnovers. The Sooners threw two interceptions, fumbled three times. One of those fumbles was returned for a touchdown. The other one was almost returned for a touchdown. The return yardage matters. Here's how the punting side of it fits in, though. If you punt the ball and you get greater than a 50-yard average in your punt, and you don't allow any return yardage. Punting is an advantage to you in field position. Now, if you don't think that's true, ask Louisiana State why they're number one. They're not just number one because of the skill and ability of their defense. They're not just number one because their offense managed to make few enough mistakes that it didn't hurt them terribly. They're not just number one because of the punt returns for touchdowns by the only defensive player who was part of the final five in the Heisman Trophy voting, they're also regarded that highly because they've got a very skilled and talented punter. Oklahoma State also, very skilled and talented punter. How many touchbacks does your punter generate? If it's a situation where he's punting and a touchback is not a factor, if he's punting from his own side of the field, what's his average in that situation? What's the net average? When you take the length of his punts, minus the return yardage, or minus the 20-yard sort of benefits you get if the ball goes into the end zone and it's touchback, back and the offense gets 20 net yards back that way. What about the penalties? What about a team that seems to have really great offensive numbers but commits 200 yards in penalties in a game? You can't win a game producing 499 net yards of offense. If you commit 150 yards in penalties, turn the ball over five times, and have a punter who averages 20 yards a kick – You can't win that way. I got in the habit with my father and brother of referring to this as statistical yardage because I didn't know what else to call it to account for the fact that from a pie chart perspective, the major media, when they talk about how good a defense is at preventing scores and yardage and how good an offense is at producing scores and yardage, doesn't take into account the impact of turnovers and field position. When when you ask any coach worth his salt today... What the most important and tangible, what's the big thing? What's the factor that's going to tip whether you win or lose today? What's the thing you're worried about? They're almost always going to say it's turnovers and field position. When you talk about somebody being the best defense in college football, you need to take into account the fact that they're better than you even know. Because whatever their defensive statistics tell you about them, we're not giving them 50 yards credit back for every turnover that they've produced. Right? Oklahoma State produced a lot more turnovers than anybody in college football. In fact, if they have a spectacularly good bowl game at the expense of Stanford, they may set the mark for the most turnovers generated in college football history. Thanks for listening.